In this episode of The Cole Memo, I sit down with Caitlin Bailey. Caitlin is the host of The Oldest Profession podcast. I wish I would have found this podcast when I first started this project on The Cole Memo. In case you didn't know, folks, I've been releasing episodes on this on the subject of Nevada brothels and legalized prostitution within the state of Nevada. If you'd like to see all of the episodes that I've released to date, you can go to thecolememo.com slash sex. But honestly, if you just want to check out this episode that I'm referencing by Caitlin Bailey on the Oldest Professions podcast, you'll I found it a little bit into recording this, which is why I invited Caitlin onto my show. It is one of the best pieces of media out there regarding this specific subject, Nevada brothels and the truth about legalized prostitution. The Oldest Profession podcast also has the best coverage on sex work in general, but I just wanted to say I had been looking for like a comprehensive piece of media, and this is exactly it. So I'm displaying it on my screen right now. I'll have it linked in the uh, show notes for this episode. So folks, if you'd like to check out this episode that I'm referring to that was uh, released by Caitlin Bailey, it's about this subject, Nevada brothels and the truth about legalized prostitution. I highly recommend you check it out. It is one of the best pieces of media out there on this subject, which of course we've been exploring in this series on the Cole Memo. Folks, in case you didn't know, I'm your host, Cole Preston. Every episode of the Cole Memo is released in audio, video, and transcript formats. To find the transcript, audio, or video version of any episode, please refer to the description of the episode that you're listening to now. Within that description, you can find a link that will take you to our website, which will display the transcript for this episode and the platforms where you can find this episode in audio or video formats. If you're unable to locate the episode description on whichever platform you're listening from, simply note the episode nu episode number and visit thecolememo.com. From there, you can find the corresponding episode and then you'll be able to access the audio, video, and transcript version of that episode. You might also find any links that we reference during the episode, like the one I just referenced, so that you might be able to do your own research on these topics. If you're not listening to this episode of The Cole Memo on Patreon, then you're listening to this episode later than our patrons. To become a patron, go to thecolememo.com slash Patreon. Once again, that's thecolememo.com slash P-A-T-R-E-O-N. It's a great way to support our show. One of the best ways to support our show is absolutely free. Subscribe to or follow our show. Leave us a positive review from wherever you're listening to us from. Favorite this episode, give it a thumbs up, leave a comment or post a review. Your engagement and support is appreciated. Folks, I know you're going to enjoy this episode of The Cole Memo. Today is December 25th, 2023, and it looks like I originally recorded this episode with Caitlin around August 1st of 2023. So keep that in mind and enjoy this episode of The Cole Memo. I am so humbled for the opportunity to speak with my next guest, 
Caitlin Bailey. Caitlin, go ahead and introduce yourself to my audience, please. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Um, I am the host of the Oldest Profession podcast and the founder and executive director of Old Pros. We are a nonprofit media organization trying to create the conditions to change the status of sex workers in society. Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you for what you do. Um, seriously, uh, not only for your work in sex work uh, and in that realm, but I also found out that you're a stand up comedian. I love comedy. So thank you for doing that as well. We all need oh, to love and you. laugh. <laughs> I've actually got a show that I hope to be touring uh, like next year. It's called um, Whore's Eye View, and it's 10,000 years of history in 75 minutes. It's stand up history lecture and a little bit of personal storytelling. Well, I will keep my eyes out for that because, well, let me just tell my fans how I found you. So I've been doing, and some of my hardcore fans may know this uh, because we have like a series on sex work that is exclusively available for those hardcore fans of ours, but we're working on uh, rolling that out for public listening. And one of the things I wanted to do before I did that was I was just really looking for more coverage on this subject. I kept feeling like I'd find a little bit from like Lisa Ling on CNN, you know, back in the day, she was doing some coverage on brothels. Mm -hmm. I'd find a little bit here, a little bit there, but I couldn't find everything on Nevada sex work, which is uh, the major, like kind of where we'll start today. I feel like it's a good springboard uh, for the larger topic we're talking about, which is kind of like decriminalization versus legalization, which I think you have some thoughts on. Um, but I wanted to just give quickly give you a compliment. I stumbled on the Oldest Profession podcast, specifically your episode about the Nevada sex market. And I was like, this is what I've been looking for all in one. <laughs> I love hearing that. Thank you. Yeah, seriously. It was so hard to get the story from, you know, the early days of Mae Cunningham all the way to yeah. the days of Dennis Hoff. And you laid it yeah. all out. Thank you. I really appreciate that. I, you know, what I do at the Oldest Profession podcast, um, I was looking for this stuff, too. Um, and I, I found, you know, a lot of um, sex worker rights advocates don't know the history. And a lot of historians are really focused on a specific period of time or a specific era. And so this really broad sweeping, like, how do sex workers fit into the story? How have we contributed to our communities? What um, what are our stories in our own words has really driven um, this multi-year project. And so to be able to lay it all out there and really look at how the Nevada brothels came to be, I think it it's a really great demonstration of why we advocate for the decriminalization of prostitution and not the legalization of prostitution, which to really smart, well-meaning people sounds like a great idea, right? There's so much um, in the way that this came to be that I think demonstrates why our stated intentions, that's not how it plays out in real life. Yeah, and if I could, you know, some people laugh at me when I draw this analogy, but I see an analogy or a similarity between um, sex work and the civil liberties we're fighting for and mm -hmm. drug policy. And for one sure. of the things that I think people are misled about is that decriminalization is this sort of baby step 
towards mm-hmm. legalization when really actually it's like the first and foremost goal. Like we got to get decriminalization done before yeah. we even start talking about that shit. Yeah. First priority is to stop the arrests, right? You've got to call off the hunt. I will point out because this is a, a, a conversation I have a lot. And so this this nuance is important to me um, is I think it's really important to remember that drugs are commodities, right? And commodities can be regulated, right? Like, you know, I know that they're, you know, again, smart, well-meaning people that have smart sounding things to say about why it's so important for the FDA to be involved in like literal drugs. Fine. Um, But sex workers are people. And when they're when efforts are made to regulate us like commodities, then you end up turning us into second class citizens. You really erode and reduce our negotiating power. And that opens up the door for more violence and more exploitation and all of the problems that are associated with prostitution and criminalization. Yeah. Yeah. And to your point, I want to loosely quote you uh, something I wrote down from your episode uh, to that point. You know, typically people think of legalization of drugs and everything is like this hippie movement, right? This cool, oh, let's legalize it, man. And so right. they might look at Nevada if if people are mm-hmm. at all aware that Nevada has legalized sex work. I'm going to say that in uh, air quotes. Um, they might think of it as this progressive, open-minded, hippie, cool reform that happened in the 70s. But it was more like a sort of violent libertarians in the desert defending their right to profit off of the labor of women that they may or may not see as people. Yeah, unfortunately, that does feel like a more accurate description. It can also be described as a, uh, you know, shitty compromise between the mafia and the FBI, uh, two other uh, patriarchal institutions with more in common than they'd like to admit. Yeah. And um, that's another quote that uh, (laughs) that I wanted to plug from you on a different show you were on. You were on the Holly Randall unfiltered. And you said, I really think that this speaks to the heart and gets to the heart of everyone's problem with sex work. Engaging in sex work gives women the freedom and movement. uh, Sorry, freedom of movement and purchasing power. Sex workers have been able to carve out a level of freedom that was aggressively and violently denied to the majority of most women. Correct. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't until the 1970s that married women were allowed to have their own credit cards. Um, you know, it's and sex workers have been trading effectively uh, respectability for access to public spaces. And yeah. when, yeah, and um, you know, outside of sex work, there's, I mean, there's so much policing around what women wear, where they go, who they associate with. And the big fear is that they don't want to be mistaken for sex workers. Why? Well, when you're mistaken for a sex worker, all kinds of things are allowed to happen to you. Right. You know, we're serial killers, uh, all kinds of predators. You can be uh, kicked out of respectable establishments, etc. But you're also allowed to go where you want and trading that respectability opens doors that are and have been historically closed to women who are banking on their respectability and social status um, to get by. Yeah, it's it's like one of those weird ways where I'm going to have a really hard time phrasing this. So please uh, forgive <laughs> me if I phrase it like in a way You're that's insensitive, but like to to your point and the reason i brought that up is i think about back in the day when men did think that they just had ultimate power over women and that women were just their property so to say 
and to 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 hear that yes sex workers were able to kind of carve that out turn the tables so to Mm -hmm. say and be like oh you you know you want to treat us like this like i i'm that's where i struggle to finish my example (laughs) sure you get what i'm trying i'm trying to go no, you can absolutely turn the tables. And, you know, sex workers were, uh, you know, some of the first entrepreneurs, right? They call it the oldest profession. Um, one of the first published authors in the Western world was Veronica Franco, of, you know, from the 16th, 17th century. I always get those mixed up because I'm not a real historian. But uh, she lived in Venice at a time when respectable, well-born women were not allowed uh, to read or access the library. And she became a renowned author and publisher and editor and advocate for women um, in her own right. And that wasn't in spite of being a sex worker, but because of her status as a courtesan, she had access to publishers and libraries and paper in a a way that no, uh, yeah, no respectable woman would be able to even enter those spaces. Yeah. Yeah. And I kind of want to go ahead. Sorry. Sorry. And it's just so interesting and frustrating to me that we have all of these examples, right, of women who have used sex work to escape abusive relationships, to start businesses, to put themselves through school, to fund a career in the arts. And yet it persists as a symbol of violence against women, right? You have the Gloria Steinems in the, of the world, Catherine McKinnons, who have turned prostitution um, or, you know, like erotic content really across the board into uh, synonymous. They've made it synonymous with exploitation. Um, and that has led to so many bad laws and policies that hurt the people so many of these advocates claim they're trying to help. Yeah. Yeah, and that's actually one of the questions I was going to ask towards the end of today's show that that I've been asked, you know, when I when I kind of premiered. So I currently I host this show called the Chillinois Podcast, mm-hmm. and it's been kind of focused on drug decriminalization. And when I rolled this out, and one of the things I said was, I mean, this is the oldest profession. And one of the questions somebody asked me was, or is it the world's oldest exploitation? And I'm like, does it have to be either or? Right. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> what if all work is bad? Right. Just, right. Whoa. Yeah. That's an example you gave that I thought was powerful. Your father uh, mm-hmm. on a show that I listened to, your father technically gave up his body. My grandfather gave up his mm-hmm. body at the young age of like 18 or 17 years old yeah. to go fight for our country. So. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, there are real examples of violence and exploitation um, in the sex trade and also across all labor sectors. And I often talk about, you know, my father's experience because the, you know, story of soldiers and sex workers goes way back. And I think it's a really good comparison between, you know, the cultural narrative and the lived reality. Right. People said that I sold my body. Right. People said that I debased myself. People said that I, you know, gave myself a level of trauma that would make human connection more difficult for me later in life. And none of those things, um, right. you know, reflect my experience. And all of them reflect the way that I saw multiple tours of duty at multiple wars impact my father. You know, my dad signed uh, signed up for the army at 17 and one month old, right? He was sent to the Dominican Republic. He was sent to Vietnam. He actually died last year from cancer uh, that was caused by exposure to Agent Orange. So, you know, we can talk about 
selling your body and violence and exploitation. But I hope that we can really talk about it instead of using prostitution as this obscuring symbol um, for all of the things that we're actually too afraid to face. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, like I said, I thought that was a really powerful example that I've heard you use and that I was able to relate to. So, Thank you. Yeah, yeah, and I think, you know, we can talk about, you know, slaughterhouses, right? I mean, there was a recently several news cycles where we found, you know, 11, 12, 13 year old children, right? Mostly migrants or, you know, uh, that were working in, in slaughterhouses or in textile mills or in processing plants. I mean, there are horrific abuses that are happening, but none of these are problems that we can arrest our way out of. Yeah, I think just this year I read that there have been a few youth deaths because I think mm -hmm. some states have started child labor again in the United States. Yeah, yeah, that's their <laughs> that's their solution to the uh, millennials not having enough kids. <laughs> right. Right. But anyways, or, that's yeah, or or organized labor. Right. Yeah. 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 Exactly. But I w I wanted to ask you, um, how just to back up a little bit, how did you approach? looking into this topic and was your inspiration, I guess, just to start before we get to how you mm -hmm. looked into the topic, was your inspiration this, that, that like misconception that I quoted you on earlier? Like if you were to ask me before I did all this research, mm -hmm. I would have told you this was this, it was that Nevada was this state that decided sure. like, Hey, people should have the right to do whatever they want, man. Right. We're, the sin, we're the sin state, man. And I would have thought that this was for like, <laughs> For women, but I learned very right. quickly it's it's not. So I wanted to ask you first, yeah, what ins what inspired you to look into it, and and how did you approach looking into this? Yeah, yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. So clearing up that misconception was at the forefront of my mind, right? And there are, you know, again, smart uh, people that you know are good intentions that believe in the liberation of women that think that sex workers are fine that have questions like what's wrong with mandatory STI testing, right? Brothels sound great. Why wouldn't we want to create zoning? And so helping people really understand who these systems benefit and the way that those systems play out and sort of erode the yeah. negotiating power and erode, you know, the the workers' rights um, for sex workers and are, and are so grounded in these like old, long debunked ideas, right, of like sex workers being vectors of disease or like some people that have to, you know, you have to protect communities from uh, you know, like literal or proverbial infection. And I think it's important to to know that history, right, and to know um, how this plays out in real life so that when you find yourself advocating for policies or thinking through um, how this should go, we can avoid some of those pitfalls. Yeah. Yeah. It and so how did you um how did you approach doing this research? I saw that you kind of maybe even worked with a historian and stuff. Oh um, yeah. So yeah, Dr. Um Dr. Charlene Fletcher helped me prepare for all of the episodes for season three and season four. Very talented um historian. And I've also been talking to people that work in Nevada brothels at conferences and in sex worker rights circles. And I wrote an article several years ago um trying to understand this phenomenon myself. When I started advocating for sex worker rights, you really need to be able to explain to people why decriminalization is the only policy that reduces violence. Like what is wrong with, you know, workplace protections that in progressive circles, right, sound like progress or sound like something that would be beneficial to employees, um, but isn't when it's in this like deeply horophobic context. Yeah. 
Yeah. yeah. And I mean, I guess if we want to just dive right in, because I have also been interviewing um, workers, current, mm-hmm. former, yep. uh, you know, all in between, you know, managers, just to try yeah. to get the whole spectrum of perspectives on what the hell is going on there. And, and I know we've kind of already made this point, but yeah, it doesn't sound like this libertine uh, women's freedom location. Which is, yeah, which is not to say that you can't have a good time, right, as a worker or a client in a Nevada brothel, right? I have tons of friends that, like, really enjoyed the ability of, like, flying in, not having to worry about arrest, doing your time, flying back home, fine. But I also know women, right, who've had their kids taken away because it was revealed in court that they were a legally registered prostitute in Nevada. I know people who, um, you know, worked for weeks on end and ended up owing more money to the house. I know women who, you know, went to Nevada for a period of time um, and felt uh, trapped and exploited and like they couldn't tell the difference between state law and house rules and some, you know, something that some guy was just making up because he had a shitty manager that shift or whatever. And for me, with a background working as an independent escort in, you know, a sort of criminalized but not surveilled capacity, I really got in there in this like golden age, right? After cell phones with Craigslist erotic services, uh, before all of those tools were taken away. So I had a very privileged experience as an independent, but you know, working at a brothel seemed to combine everything that was hard and complicated about being a sex worker with everything that sucks about being a waitress, except you're only doing 12 and 24 hour shifts. Yeah. Yeah. And and it kind of goes back to my thing that I agree with. I'm glad you actually led with that because I just went right to the negative. And I think it is important to lead with this experience is not a monolith. In fact, some of the of women course. that I spoke to both entered and exited, maybe not on the best of terms, but they were able to do that. Like yes. you described, though, some people aren't. And that's mm-hmm. those are the those are the really those are the ones that, you know, concern me the most. But like you say, there are people and, I, you know, you can look online even and see some who have been able to enter, exit or thrive in the Nevada yep. sex market. And yep. so it's not like I say, it's not binary it's not the world's oldest profession or the world's oldest exploitation maybe it's somewhere in the middle you know but i will say that as a system it has failed to reduce violence it has failed to reduce arrests and it has failed uh to create a system that increases uh the negotiating power of sex workers yeah and and that's that's kind of where that's where i was going is I think you had said it um, on on your episode that I'm referring to about Nevada sex market, which, by the way, folks, we'll have that linked in our podcast description if you want to check it out. You talked about how these laws and this this is the similarity that I see between drugs. I agree with what you said earlier, Mm -hmm. where like the whole idea of regulating a substance versus a person like definitely not going there. Um, But here's the similarities I see. These rules are not set up to protect the patron or the person working at the establishment. Correct. They're only set up to protect the person making that money off of the establishment. The license holder, right? That's what creating a licensing system does, right? It creates a prohibitively expensive and difficult process where you have a select group of folks who are profiting from what is effectively like a state 
state-run monopoly, not an especially effective state-run monopoly as the amount of sex work happening outside of these legally li- licensed brothels is astronomical, right? The le- Which is why Nevada has the highest arrest rate per capita for prostitution-related offenses, despite being the only state with legal prostitution. So- right. Yeah, it's it's definitely a system that was set up to benefit like 12 dudes instead of this historically marginalized underclass of people. Yeah. And I want to dwell on what you um, just said there again. And it's. I don't know if I could say it just as perfectly as as you just did, but yeah, it's not. You said it perfectly. It's it's meant to. Well, I. If there's any fact that I if there's only one fact that you leave this conversation with or, you know, that you move forward with um, of like, why is legalization a problem? It's like because Nevada is the only state with legal regulated prostitution and it has the highest arrest rate per capita by a huge margin than any other state in the country. This is not a system that reduces arrests. This is a system that creates incentives, right, for brothel owners to want to crack down on their criminalized competition. It increases arrests. Bingo. And that is like that. Oh, my gosh. I'm so glad you just restated that because I'm going to like I'll be able to clip that, put it in a bottle and just <laughs> it. that is like such an analogous uh, st- sentiment that you just it not only applies perfectly to what I've found in the sex industry, but also the cannabis industry yeah, and absolutely. other industries that are starting, you know? I mean, I I went into, um, I got, I look, I read some reviews online. I, I, it doesn't matter how it happened, but I got my medical marijuana card so that I could shop at one of the licensed uh, retailers that's here in New York. And in order to do that, I have to pass like six unlicensed places that, you know, probably have fine stuff and seem to be doing a right. good job. I just I wanted something in particular and sort of went to do that and was um not surprised but disheartened to hear the establishment kind of talking shit about the unlicensed places. And and I totally get it, right? Because they went through all of the hoops and like their customers have to get cards and it's a whole rigmarole and it feels like they're fighting uphill because they have to do it this way. Well, you know, in the meantime, my corner store is just like sativa or indica. Right. And so I get it, but it it really does pit the sort of like criminalized element of the industry against the legalized and regulated one. And it distracts us from our common enemy, which is the um, people that would ever arrest us for doing any of this because it's never been a problem. Yeah, I don't want to jump ahead too far, but actually bringing up this person might be helpful in kind of rounding out our conversation on Nevada and then moving on to maybe what ideally would be a better model. Mm-hmm. Um, Dennis Hoff. Dennis yeah. Hoff used to bastardize uh, the illegal sex market. Talk about how dirty oh, it was. Yeah. He used dirty. to pat, him, yes. yeah, pat himself on the back about talking about how he's fighting trafficking. Did he die too soon to become a QAnon guy or did he like get, did we get a taste of that sort of before? before I am passed? honestly surprised that that there was not some sort of like controvert or a uh, conspiracy theory surrounding his death. 
that that is interesting. I did not hear that, and you're right. It does feel like it would it would be that would be on brand. But yeah, yeah. no, Dennis Hoff um, got a lot of mileage out of you know perpetuating these these false narratives about sex work because it benefited his business. And you know, I know from sex worker rights advocates that if you if you got him in private, I mean, he would admit to you that like you know, sex workers working outside of the legal bra hole have the same tools available to them to reduce STIs that, yeah. you know, they do in the brothel and generally do. Um, but uh, but yeah, it would be an existential threat to his business if you could just hire an independent escort in Vegas. Why would you drive to one of his brothels in the middle of the desert? Yeah. And yeah. Uh, really quick before we move on any further, can you tell my listeners who Dennis Hoff is in case oh, they don't sure. know? Uh, yes, I, I don't. I hope I get. Um, yeah. So Dennis Hoff was one of the largest brothel owners in Nevada. I forget the exact number um, that he owned, but it was several of them. And he really rose to notoriety with an HBO uh, series called The Cat House, which was like a reality show set in one of these brothels. And he just comes across as like a blowhard. And uh, he has a lot of smart things to say about why prostitution shouldn't be illegal, but he has a lot of dumb and terrible things to say about, you know, why independent sex uh, about decriminalization. Um, And so I feel like he sort of betrayed uh, the movement that he was never that he never considers himself a part of. Right. By spending most of his energy shitting on criminalized sex workers uh rather than being an advocate uh for decrim yeah although he did do one cool thing uh that i want to give him credit for there was a tantric sex instructor who was running a temple and a school for tantric providers in arizona and she was arrested on prostitution trafficking and procuring charges and dennis hoff testified uh in her defense and said look as somebody who runs the brothel this is not what that is. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. And I'll give him some credit too, before I guess I kind of bring up some of the bad things I've heard about maybe the culture he's perpetuated and everything else. Um, I think he's done a lot to bring forth the conversation, mm-hmm. whether you like it or not, what he's talking about or his angle on it, like to go on Oprah, to go on Howard Stern, mm-hmm. all the different shows he went on, like a lot of media attention. Frankly, he's the reason I'm aware of it. And and frankly, he's sure. the reason I'm a supporter. Like if it uh, his confident interviews that I used mm-hmm. to see back in the day against critics, I was like, because I was kind of like, whoa, why is it? Why is this able to go on? Are these women okay? And then he would yeah. give this like confident speech of like these women yep. want to be here, and I make them rich and blah blah blah. Yeah. And so yeah, he kind and of a lot of that was made true. the supporter in me, you know. Yeah, and and again, like he was a very confident advocate for the legalization of prostitution. And I know a lot of folks that he did make rich. And I also know a lot of folks who he made feel small because he was just, you know, like so many charismatic men in the entertainment industry, just a stone cold misogynist. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that's maybe that's a good place to start. One of the things I recently heard uh, from his workers that I was picking up, but it was, it was told to me more clearly that it was from him, this culture of, if you don't have drama, if you don't have drama, well, you need to stir some up. It's like this idea that uh, if they're not competing, yep. Yep. Then, then that's not, and they're not working hard enough. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like you're creating a sales culture. Yeah. And that's one of my big critiques of the Nevada 
uh, model as I'm not sure if your listeners know about the the culture or the rigmarole or what a you know a session or an appointment at um, a legal brothel looks like, but it starts with the lineup, right? Where you know a potential client enters and all of the available you know providers literally line up and there are pretty strict rules about whether or not they can talk or you know what what can happen during these interactions where the client walks down the line to sort of choose his companion for for the evening and so it's it it really is baked into the model of having a a pretty competitive and aggressive workplace environment which you know look some people thrive in that and other people don't. And so it shouldn't be the only available option if you're trying to avoid arrest. Right. Yeah. And, um, you know, one of the things that that really gets me, you know, just to take it a bit further. Uh, first of all, I actually went um, to the bunny ranch, Humpa Bunny. Um, I got a coffee cup. I did not purchase any services. Uh, which I think they were a little bit upset with me about. But hey, they said I could come and get a free tour and a free beer. There were like several yep. signs on the way up the road. So that's what I did. Yep. <laughs> Anyways, um, you know, so I experienced the lineup that you're talking about. And I will say as a person that was not even actually there to purchase sex, it was intimidating. Yeah, I'm sure. Air Force Amy was there. That was pretty crazy. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. I got to say hi to her. Um, nice. But um what I've noticed to take it to something that I feel like was never out front. I'm sure it's something you get told when you call the bunny ranch or when you call one of these establishments to work, but I wanted to get your thoughts on this. I've talked to several workers and it seems like people will go into the Nevada sex industry planning for their future, mm -hmm. right? We're, I'm going to get rich because I, or I'm going to make some money off of, you know, what I choose to do. This is what I choose to do. And so I'm going to do I'm it. I'm going to college. I'm going to start a business back at home. I'm going to do this for X number of years. Or, you know, I'm going to see this pays better than being a nurse. You know, it's bingo. A, yeah. And a lot of people, uh, a lot of stories, a lot of motivations. You mentioned this earlier, but and this is, of course, again, I want to say it's not everybody's experience, but the fact that it's been a number of people's experiences like troubles me. They go from planning to their future to being sucked into what they've been calling or, you know, what we've been calling kind of this vortex of debt that keeps them focused on the now yeah. making their rent payments instead yeah. of planning for the yeah. future. Yeah. Yeah. This is something that you see um, in a lot of industries. It's not unique to to this one, but like cash economies, sometimes you'll hear like, you know, strip performers or, you know, porn stars talk about this where the culture and the lifestyle starts to to cost what you make. And with the brothels, there are a lot of built in costs. And some of those are things that like that particular brothel is mandating. And some of them are state laws. And there's not a lot of clarity about like what the difference is. And so brothels can make you buy things, right? Brothels can make you, you know, have certain amenities. This is something that they did show at the Bunny Ranch, right? Is like when somebody came in, it was like, okay, you know, here's your rent, room and board. That's what this costs. And here's the list of all of the things that you need to buy, right? Can you bring your own lube? No, you've got to buy Bunny Ranch lube or whatever it is. And so, you know, that is, that's something that has been true of, you know, 
all kinds of brothels, especially when they operated as boarding houses in the like 18th and 19th century. Um, so yeah, that's, that's the problem. Yeah. And it's just, again, I feel like it's not, of course, like I, I like, I have to be like realistic about this. Like if I were to choose to go into this work, do I expect to just go and live somewhere for free? Nah, maybe well, not, but I mean, there's also a lot of like, you know, when you are working as a sex worker and when you are in particular working as a sex worker in a legal brothel, you still have a lot of the promotion costs, right? You have to pay for your own headshots. True. You have to keep up your own social media. The brothel is not allowed to advertise. So it's not like you do a shift at the brothel and you can just count on this, you know, revolving door of customers that probably right. want to see you. So there's a there's a hustle element that brings in a lot of the more exploitative elements of the entertainment industry, right? You know, actors have to pay for a lot of their own promotional stuff or you know all of the training or the the a thousand and one costs associated with that um you know i've worked at restaurants that were like your apron costs eleven dollars no you, sure. you know you have to uh, that'll Good come point. out of your first paycheck so this kind of model is present across industries but i think it's easier in sort of like glamour jobs, right? When you, that require or encourage um, a kind of, you know, a, a cash culture, um, you know, where people are partying and and all kinds of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And um, sorry, you brought up a point that I think I just lost. Um, that, the, just what you brought up though is brilliant. I didn't even think about that fact um, you know, that this is something that does occur in other industries. And like you've Absolutely. experienced, you know, I've had to pay for my own uniform or whatever before. Right. Um, so, yeah. Um, I want to get to the subject that I think you're very passionate about uh, before we get to ideally what the the model would be, which is that this doesn't, and you mentioned it at the forefront of our conversation, this doesn't do a lot to make it safer for the workers with regard to violence, and I'm starting to argue, and I'm curious to hear what you think, with regard to testing. So let's start with violence first. There's no security, from what I've been able to tell, at any of these brothels. Mixed bag, right? So there is there is some benefit, which is you know one of the reasons why sex workers want to work together and why you know anti-trafficking or end-demand laws that prohibit that increase violence against sex workers is that being in community can be its own protection, right? Okay. There's yeah, yeah. less violence that's likely to occur. What I have seen both like on the show and from anecdotes amongst folks that I know is that uh, when you're working you know, at these places, you're subjected to the same kind of sexual harassment that like a waitress might be subjected to. Your managers have a lot of power over you. There's mm -hmm. not a lot of, you know, good boundaries. You're doing a, a sexual industry. But if you hit the panic button in your room with a client, someone will come. It might be another worker. It might be security that lives there. Um, and you're, you know, less likely to be, uh, you know, subjected to a, a serial killer, for example, because they're they're less likely to come to a, a brothel where it's going to be infinitely harder to do that kind of violence. But you're still subjected to the kind of violence that stigmatized sex workers face in their intimate relationships, domestic violence, and again, at the hands of managers who know that they're working with a, a stigmatized uh, and 
trapped uh, group of people. Yeah. But yeah. like, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, no, please. I was just going to say, like, for the, the Bunny Ranch, for example, like, the security was a, I mean, I guess, like you say, the other women, as one of the women that I spoke to said, uh, having a lot of women coming after you in stilettos is not a Correct. ideal situation, which is true, but I'm just saying yeah. that and a man, you know, uh, maybe a couple of men with a gun in the middle of a desert. But but we, you know, I don't know. Brothels are one of the few places in the U.S. that haven't been shot up yet. So uh, well, there was a recent not... shooting at the Bunny Ranch, but that was oh, one of the girls. I missed that. Uh Oh, yeah, that's I'm sorry. Please. Could you do you edit these? Can you cut that part out that I missed oh. that? Is that <laughs> no? I mean, why? Why do you want to edit it out? That's fine. You oh. just missed a news story. It's OK. I, I don't know. It's I don't know. It feels like the kind of thing that I should be. Uh, no, it, it, it wasn't very. I don't want to. I mean, if you they insist, get... I can cut no, it no, no, out. No, no, but that's I, fine. It's, okay, cool. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I want to show you. It's, if you look it up, there was a, and it wasn't very well reported on. So the fact ah, that you didn't hear about it is not. That makes more sense. Yeah. So, um, but basically there was, uh, I'm not going to say the person's name because sure. uh, I just don't, I'll say their stage name, Tierra Tay, mm -hmm. um, who has been a, notable brothel worker for some time people call her the bully barbie you can see how mm -hmm. into this culture i am um nice. i know all the little names um but it, yeah apparently like wrestling culture it really is it yeah. really is but yeah apparently she had a firearm um mm -hmm. she's facing four charges convicted felon in possession of a firearm so she was a felon and she had a firearm and um, yeah, apparently this happened on the Bunny Ranch. It's hard to get a lot of details. I've heard mixed stories because, again, this wasn't very well reported on. So sure. don't feel it's bad. It's also for not the case that you were describing, right? This isn't a client coming through the door right. looking to Correct. do violence against sex workers, right? This Correct. is somebody that worked there, yeah. right? Um, having, you know, some sort of terrible and awful incident. Yeah. But yeah. And so, you know, it's it's hard to make big declarative statements. You know, you don't see a lot of sex workers, uh, you know, being you know, violently attacked um, on the brothel premises. But you do see people that work at brothels suffering from the same kind of stigma that makes all of us more susceptible to violence. Yeah. 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 And um, th so the other the other topic I to round that out, yeah, I agree with you. Um, that and yeah, and and what I will say is that the structure of the brothels, or like having an armed security guard at the door, if that was even what was happening, which it sounds like it wasn't, isn't the only way to prevent violence. When you decriminalize, right? When you take right. the threat of arrest away, then there are a lot more tools that are available to sex workers to keep ourselves safe, right? We can tell our friends and family the truth yeah. about where we're going and who we're meeting. We can travel with a friend without facing, you know, pimping, procuring, or trafficking charges. We can run people's license plate or ask for their information up front without them assuming that I am a police officer. So there's a lot of stuff that can happen when you remove the threat of criminalization. You don't have to corral vulnerable women into an isolated house in the desert and put armed guards there to like keep them safe. That's not, that's not a, the only way to do that. Yeah, that's a brilliant point. And that's actually one of the reasons that one of the workers I spoke to said that she left. She said that she felt um, that the security there was something she could do herself she was like i'm doing Correct. all this vetting myself you know like yeah. nobody even sees me until i've vetted them 
You know what I mean? Yeah. And that's that's something that is true about the sort of like criminalized or, or segments of the criminalized market is that there's a lot more vetting. The mm-hmm. only thing that has to happen for you to go to a you just have to walk through the door of a brothel. Right. But in order to book an appointment with, you know, some escorts, there's a back and forth, there's a negotiation, there's like a background check that can happen. That's that's not happening at the brothel. And that gets to my other point that she brought up. She might be a little bit of an exception because she's also an adult film star. But she mm-hmm. I for my I got the impression that she prefers her, let's say, patrons sure. to also be tested. And that's not something that's happened in the brothels. And when I asked every brothel worker, they were very quick to be like, well, well, that wouldn't be realistic or that would. And I get what they're trying to say. Of course. Yeah. Well, I mean, I get what they're trying to say. Like, if you're going to a brothel as a man, you've made the decision earlier that day. Like, I want to fuck. And so I'm going to the brothel. And by the time you're there, you're like, let's do this. And so the last thing you want to do maybe is take a test. Valid point. But I I was asking them, like, wouldn't it make you feel safer if, you know? Here's the problem. There are many problems with mandatory testing, mm-hmm. right? And one of them is that it decreases uh, taking protective measures, right? So the oh. more you blast this point, that. we test our girl, nobody, everyone right. here is clean. Nobody here has an STI. The more clients are like, well, we should just, why? let's, what I would like to do. Is not right. wear a condom. So, right. so what? What my spidey senses, right? As a sex worker, tell me that if you ask clients to go through the rigmarole of getting an STI test, that's only going to empower them to be stronger advocates right. for removing the necessary pr- protection. Right. Yeah. So, I think that condoms and not mandatory STI testing is the answer. I think that reducing barriers to healthcare, right? Again, decriminalization allows yep. sex workers to tell their doctors the truth about the work that they do. Um, you know, I am a huge fan of universal health care. I think it should be easier for everyone to see the doctor. Uh, public health is a public concern. Right. But I think that like forcing sex workers to both pay and undergo these tests that are then sort of like sold as propaganda for like justifying the existence of the brothel and justifying the containment of sex workers, all of that is done is in the name of disease prevention, right? The reason that sex workers are not allowed to leave the brothel, right, right when they're on shift is because of this uh, STI concern. Um, it's also about the fact that the brothels don't want sex workers leaving the brothel because then they might compete with the brothel by offering sexual services off the premises, which cannot right. be, you know, uh, fine. That They don't owe money to the brothel if that happens. Right. So I see I see problems with mandatory STI testing and benefits to increasing access to all kinds of healthcare, including um, STI testing, uh, prevention and treatment. Thank you for talking about that. You know, that is a really holistic view, I think, of approaching this. It doesn't just have to be. That's it. what's interesting about some of the ways I'm approaching to this. I haven't thought about it as holistically as you mm-hmm. are. So I really appreciate like. Yeah, your approach to that subject. Yeah, I mean, um, we we're really afraid of STIs, and I I get it. They suck, right? Sure. It's you know, <laughs> sure. no one, right? Like I, I I get it. And the AIDS epidemic um really instilled a level of fear that led to some really bad policies, like the criminalization of HIV/AIDS. 
you know, so you have folks that are being, you know, arrested for prostitution and then charged as, you know, felons or whatever for, you know, engaging in sex with this, uh, with this horrific illness. And so that stigma, it didn't do anything to reduce the spread of this horrific STI, right? It only prevented people from seeking the care that they need, from being able to tell their healthcare providers, um, and from being able to seek, uh, like, the whole time that we were aggressively criminalizing sex workers who worked with HIV AIDS, we also criminalized carrying condoms because we were using it as right. evidence to prosecute people for prostitution. So if we want to make public health the goal, we can do that. But we cannot do that through coercive control and criminalization and all of these other fear tactics um, associated with VD. Yeah. Yeah. Um, before I switch, I was going to switch to the topic of like lockdown brothels and everything else, but any other thoughts on that subject? Sure. No. Um, no, cool. thanks for, thanks for giving me the space to talk about it. It's nice to have nuanced conversations about STIs. Yeah. Yeah. No, seriously. Thank you. Um, and, and you brought up lockdown brothels, so I wanted to talk about mm -hmm. them. Um, because like you say, I feel like that's that's another part of the industry that I just don't know how I feel about. Like, here's what I have heard though, just to set the stage and then to give you the space to talk sure. about this subject. Um, I have heard people credit Dennis Hoff actually for ending the complete lockdown culture uh, mm -hmm. by allowing the women. And I like that word allowing um, it sounds so much like he owns them still, but anyways, allowing the women to, um, uh, leave for, I think, a period of like 12 hours. And the reason it's not 24 is because she might have sex. And in which case, if you are gone for 24 hours, you need to retest. Everyone knows you know? it takes 13 hours to have sex. Correct. Unless 13. you're in a brothel, in which case you can do it in 15 or 30 minute increments. <laughs> right. Um, that... I believe that. I'm, you know, I've talked to some folks that have worked for with Dennis Hoff, and it, it was a mixed bag, right? Some people really liked his management style. Some people really got along with him. Some people thought he was a douchebag. The full spectrum. But sure. you know, I I could absolutely see him being like, "Hey, seems weird that one of my jobs is prison warden uh, for people that don't want to be here." Um, so letting people leave the premises go to the movies, sleep in their own bed, you know, there's uh I I, I could see him doing that. I don't know enough about that specific history. Um, but uh I'm sure, especially if he could do it with like you gotta have to get like a hall pass from Dennis that you like you know show at the grocery store or something. I'm like, I don't want oh to be here. I've came here for eggs. Right, it's right. Gross. Yeah. I could only imagine it would be a really gross hall pass, like a mm -hmm. the shape of a you know, the shape of a phallic. Uh, anyways though. Yeah. <laughs> uh so uh here's something that I felt hasn't changed since like the 80s there's this mm -hmm. really good book folks that maybe you've heard of uh caitlin that i found at my library that i have really been enjoying that talks about a lot of the things you covered in your podcast so i'm just yeah. plugging it again the nye sure. county brothel wars um but to your point uh you've brought up earlier with uh and that we're talking about now so we're talking about lockdown brothels now but you also mm -hmm. talked about their shifts earlier this is a quote from the book Days went by in a whorehouse like the chicken ranch where the girls worked 15 hours. First of all, I love just how candid the wording is in this book, a yeah. whorehouse. Um, mm -hmm. Anyways, 
uh, days went by in a whorehouse like the Chicken Ranch where the girls worked 15 hours, then went to bed, then awoke to another 15 hours. They might as well have been hurtling through space in an enclosed capsule as sitting in a trailer out in Nevada. The girls worked three weeks on, one week off, and during those three weeks, they were allowed to leave the trailers for a nine-hour stretch only once a week. It's from the 80s. Doesn't sound much different from today. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's not the kind of working conditions that I would describe as liberated uh, in any capacity. Yeah. But yeah. To, to your point that you well, it's similar to your point that you made earlier. And it's a it's a point that one of the sex workers I spoke with made. I was like, what other job would you be forced to work like 15 hours and stay there and all this stuff? And they're like, firefighters, firefighters. Yep. And I was like, oh, yep. shit. Touche. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. And so it, it, it is interesting. And, you know, I, I definitely don't want to uh, I think it would be inaccurate to describe these 15 hour shifts as like one client after another. Sure. A lot of the 15 hour shift is sitting around chatting Chilling. with other yeah. people that work there, you know, um, but it is. uh yeah, I mean, it's I don't know how the brothel is not paying those women to be available, right? They the independent contractors are there waiting for clients to come through the door. So, yeah, it's. Now, another point you made earlier, and sorry, I'm having so much fun today. Are we good on time? I've only got a little bit more before we get to our final. Yeah, topic. yeah, yeah. This cool. is fine. I'm good till 1230. Sweet. Perfect. Um, So, uh the the idea that um women you know have that are they aren't paid right i heard that is something that also started with dennis hoff which is interesting like when i went to the bunny ranch like many mm -hmm. women approached me and they kind of like hit on me not really it's mm -hmm. not like they were like wow this guy's so hot they were like wow maybe i could get some money off this guy so yeah, i can pay yep. room and board i'm not trying right. to flatter myself i'm trying right. to like a, like a, like at a strip club right correct yeah. correct thank you yes. i mean or even or at a restaurant right it's like when the waitress is coming up like would you like to eat is that is that what you that's came a good in point for? yeah 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 that's a really good point that's what yeah. we serve here <laughs> yeah so i just wanted to make that point though that apparently like you know workers may not be as big of a fan of that and like some men for example so like i've heard workers have mixed feelings about all those signs leading up to the bunny ranch where it's like get a free tour have a beer yeah, no correct. sex required because then right, because people the, like the sex me, workers are not paid to be tour guides they are paid to provide sexual services and if they are not being paid for sexual services they are not being paid to usher curious folks right through through the establishment um so, yeah, I mean, it, it, it makes sense, right, where like some people would love that because, you know, talking to people. But I think I would come to resent it if I started spending, you know, 30, 40 percent of my day um, talking to folks that were not paying me for my time. Well, and back to your point of uh, these women having to be very uh, innovative and, and mm -hmm. resourceful with their advertising. Well, I don't want to call it advertising, because, but that's basically yeah. what it is, you know, yeah. social media I, work, because they're in the middle of a fucking desert. It's not like people are just walking in yeah. and out all day. You know, you got to get people out there. So, yeah. And so, you know, there's some sex workers that will like spend time on the like trucker radio system, right? Talking to folks that are on the road. Uh, trying to create reasons wow. why people should take a stop. I yeah. never even thought about that. That's kind of crazy. Yeah. Get yourself a CB radio. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, sex workers have had to have had to be real innovators and they've driven that, right? And there there are real laws that constrict the kind of advertising that brothels can do. But it's also money they don't have to spend on advertising, right? If they have a bunch of independent contractors that are uniquely independently motivated to do their best to get people to come through the door, why would the establishment invest in that? Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, hey, I just realized since you're in New York, it is about 1230. So I want to be mindful of your time. Sure. Um, I have two questions I wanted to end off with and give you space on. The first one yeah. you may not be aware of as a story, so maybe we don't have much to talk about. Maybe it's something we could revisit in a future conversation. Mm -hmm. I'd love to have uh, you back on the show. I'd love um, to come back. So uh, thank you, by the way. Uh, I recently read this story, and I, like I say, it just... Oh, I say I recently read it, but apparently it was in March. I had never heard about this, though. Uh, mm -hmm. One of the sex workers that I interviewed shared it. And apparently the the Love Ranch South, not North, mm -hmm. I was told there are two. That's something I mm -hmm. learned, um, was purchased by the Jensen Project, Project a nonprofit dedicated to ending oh, sexual violence. This is going to be like the crisis pregnancy centers, but for sex work. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So? That's, that's that's what that's what I think is going to happen there. Yeah. Yeah. I, this is the first time hearing of this story, too, which um, it's uh, something I, I wish we we'd covered. I got to set up a news alert for brothels in Nevada. Make sure I don't don't miss this stuff in the future. Well, but now yeah, we're connected so we can share stuff. Yeah, please. <laughs> yeah. Don't hesitate to forward me stories. I get a lot of emails where it's like, you've probably already seen this. And I was like, please keep sending me the articles. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, that sounds uh, that sounds like something a religiously motivated group of folks that think that all prostitution is the worst form of exploitation uh, would invest in taking over the space of a brothel and, you know, carving out space for themselves. Um, but yeah, I imagine, and I'm absolutely, uh, this is all conjecture, but I imagine that they are operating similar to a crisis pregnancy center where they're trying to get uh, who they would call like sex buyers to come through the door. And instead of providing them uh with a consensual adult sex worker they're probably providing them a lot of literature and scary stories about how all sex work is trafficking in the way that you would like a voluntary john school if if you would right yeah that's crazy um yeah but, but yeah um i wanted to run that story by you we can talk about it more in the future see how it all plays out actually yeah i'll know. do some research and see yeah well, the last topic I wanted to to discuss, and I wanted to lead with using an example and then give you the space as we close mm -hmm. the show. Um, we're, I wanted to close on decrim versus legalization and why decrim is the sure. best. And I really liked an example you used, which is that decrim ends arrest altogether. You used mm -hmm. the example of decriminalization of like gay sex and oh, the yeah. example that, you know, like no paperwork's needed to engage yep. in that versus the yep. legal system. So swing at it, decrim yeah. versus legalization. I think it's important to start with definitions, right? Sure. So legalization means creating regulatory structures that are specific to sex work. And this can look different in different places. It can look like licensed brothels. It can look like forced registries. It can look like mandatory STI testing. But the point is that if you're engaging in sex work, there is something extra that you have to do to be a protected worker. This inevitably creates a two 
two-tiered system, right, where you have legal protected workers and then you have criminalized workers where you're not solving any of the problems of criminalization. Decriminalization simply means removing criminal penalties and does not create a new structure or system, but still has like all of the laws that other people have to follow, you also have to follow, right? But it uh, decriminalization means that nobody is arrested, um, evicted, or fired just for participating in this work, um, which is not to say that you can open up um, a brothel in your apartment complex for the same reason that you can't open a restaurant in your apartment complex, uh, but you can probably have people over for dinner parties a couple of nights a week. Um <laughs> So I think it's important or useful to think about sex worker rights through the lens of LGBTQ plus rights, because although sex work is work, it is also sex. And everything that you can come up with to surveil or control adult consensual sex work effectively means surveilling and controlling adult consensual sex. But if you remove the criminal penalties, right, if consensual sex between adults is just not a crime, whether people are paying for it or not, that allows sex workers, you know, who've been doing it for a day or a year or a decade to be strong self-advocates, right? To uh, to advocate for protection, to tell their doctors the truth, to um, report crimes committed against them or that they witness, uh, which is very important. But if you create a special legal structure that creates a barrier for the overwhelming majority of people who do this work um, outside of whatever the regulatory system is. I hope that you feel like I covered it. Yeah, yeah. Right. And I mean, we we definitely can talk about it more in the future with, with what's going on in the United States, because I know like New York, I think just, am I wrong? Just decrimmed or will no. be? No, oh. no, no. There are two competing bills right now, actually, which brings me to another really important distinction. Um, yeah. it, there's an end demand bill that is being sold as partial decriminalization. And then there is a uh, community safety and health bill that is actual full right. decriminalization. And so end demand, um, it's sometimes called the Nordic model or the entrapment model or, uh, you know, the feminist or equality model. Um, but effectively, it means criminalizing the clients of sex workers or anyone who helps facilitate prostitution while treating everyone who does this work as a hapless victim suffering from false consciousness who can't be trusted. The way that this plays out is everywhere these policies are implemented, sex workers get evicted. Why? Because landlords, if they become aware of the sex work, become uh, legally pimps, right? Living off the proceeds of, of sex work. It means that sex workers can't have roommates. It means that they can't have partners that live with them. Uh, it means that they can't hire security or a cleaning service or any of the other support systems that you would want to invest in. And critically, it means that you still can't report crimes committed against you because if you let the local authorities know you're a sex worker, they're going to stake out your apartment so that they can arrest your clients. Preventing people from making a living is not a form of liberation. It is not a, a handout. And when you take away people's livelihood or you make it more complicated for people to meet clients, desperate people do desperate things. You increase the likelihood that someone is going to do more for less, someone that is going to... Um, 
you know, not do their safety protocols. And again, you create this really perverse incentive where if you are criminalizing clients and not sex workers, that undermines all of our safety precautions, right? So in order to book an appointment with me, it, it used to be that, uh, you know, I needed to see um, two industry references. I needed your real name and where you worked. If you try to ask that of a client when they're the only ones facing criminalization, they're not going to give it to you. And I, as a provider, can't tell the difference between a reasonable, rational person that does not want to provide a potential undercover cop with incriminating information or a predator who's trying to get around my screening practice. So that's why everywhere these laws uh, have been implemented, violence against sex workers goes up. Yeah. And if I could really quick, I feel like the whole undertone of what you just described of those policies is that women are just so inept. They would never choose to get in there. Right. right? Am I wrong? Yeah. No, it's, these like policies the are sold as a way of protecting women, but it's protecting women in the way that we protect children. It's protecting those women from their own choices. It is not right. treating sex workers as active agents in their own lives. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I uh, I did have one last thought, uh, Please, if I yeah. could, really quick. You're fine. It's, it's remarkable to me that, and this is one of the examples that one of the sex workers I met used. Like, I literally met her in her hotel room, and after I was leaving, like, clients were coming in. And mm -hmm. I, I just jokingly said, I was like, you know, you could always just keep my camera and tripod here, and then what you're doing is completely legal. She's like, that's that's kind of the secret. <laughs> it's weird that that's the loophole across it's the weird. United it's States. It's weird. It's a loophole in a lot of places too. New Hampshire, I think, is a an example of this. And it's it's interesting too because you know, so in order to not be committing a crime, right? So you set up a camera, lights, record the whole thing happening. Now you're making yourself more vulnerable to being doxxed, being outed to your right. community, to be, having all of these other things. Recording. Whether your intention was ever to make that you know, public or not. So it it is bananas, really, how um, all of these laws that we've conceived um, around the oldest protection, uh, excuse me, around the oldest profession do the opposite of what we say we want to do, which is help women be less vulnerable. Yeah. Well, folks, yeah. you got to check out the oldest profession podcast. It's Thank an you. amazing show. And Caitlin, I really look forward to the next time we connect. Uh, For sure. Thank you so much. I really today. appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me on and for a great conversation and for covering this topic. It's it's really important. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. Well, folks, we'll see you on the next one. Take care.